Take a second this morning and ask God to speak to you. Ask the Spirit to come and, and reveal Himself to you. And would you take a second and, and pray for someone in the room? So ask God to bless someone around you. Father, we love you. We, we are so thankful for the opportunity to worship and to come together with brothers and sisters in Christ and to lift up our praises to you. We, uh, we come acknowledging all the, the places that we fall short uh, and we confess our sins to you and we celebrate the uh, forgiveness that you have for us, the grace that you give us, the patience that you have with us. We ask this morning that you would send your spirit and that he would speak powerfully, that he would move in us, that he would reveal the scriptures to us, that as we uh, open them up, that your, your spirit would continue to work, um, that he would reveal uh, Christ uh, and glory of the Father. We love you. We ask that you would come and meet with us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we will start. I hope you brought your thinking caps this morning, and I hope you brought your flipping fingers, okay? Because we're going to fly around to a few different passages, but we'll start in John chapter 1. This morning will not be a heads up, fair warning, will not be a one of those kind of easy intellectual sermons, okay? So it will require some thinking, it will hopefully challenge you uh, in a few areas, um, and uh, hopefully it will uh, be something important for us this morning. We're going to start a series on the Incarnation, okay? And so, real quickly as we get started, what this is, is it's the Christian belief, the Christian doctrine, that God became a man, okay? He was incarnated in flesh. And so when you see Jesus uh, in Palestine 2,000 years ago, walking around, you're seeing God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is what Christians call the Incarnation. And over the next uh, three kind of sermons, so two weeks really today, tomorrow, and then when we meet back again on Sunday... We're going to look at some different implications of the Incarnation. Because I think the fact that God became man really does have some profound things to teach us and, and some ways that it challenges us and maybe challenges things that we have thought and maybe should not think any longer because of the Incarnation, because God became man. So this morning I want to talk about the idea that when God incarnates himself in Jesus, we get a fresh and new revelation of who God is. Okay, so there's this, been this kind of phrase reverberating in my mind for years now. I can remember exactly where I was the first time I read it. And it's been kind of in my mind and in my heart for quite a while. And it's continued to be fleshed out as I have preached, as I have taught in the classroom, as I have academically read and written papers. It's continued to come back and back to me as I read the scriptures. The idea is this, okay? Normally, when we think, I think as Christians, about the Incarnation, we think it means... That Jesus is like God. How amazing. This man Jesus is like God. He, he knows everything, right? He's all powerful. He could do whatever he wants to do. Those type of thoughts. I think though, and, and I hope to show you this this morning from the scriptures, the more radical meaning of the incarnation is not that Jesus is like God, but flip it and watch what happens. God is like Jesus. A theologian named uh, Elton True Blood, which is an awesome vampire type name, uh, says this, The historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. No, it's far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus, okay? And so I've got uh, on your worship guide, there's a place for scriptures. We're going to list off some texts if you want to write them down. And then I'll have four points for those of you who like the points. That makes you feel comfortable, okay? There are four things that we will hit this morning. So, Here's why it's so crazy awesome. Here's why it's so important that the Incarnation gives us this revelation of God. Because what you think about God, who he is, is going to influence a lot of your life. Okay? It was A.W. Tozer who said that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. I mean, what comes to your mind immediately when you hear the word God? 
is the most important thing about you. It's going to influence how you relate to God. It's going to influence how you pray to God. It's going to influence how you worship God. It's going to influence how you relate to others and act to others. Um, it's, it's a very important thing. And, and if you're not careful, I think most of us walk around most of the time with less than perfect pictures of God in our minds and in our hearts and our souls. I think if we're honest, most of the time, what we think of when we think of God comes from a few common places. One would be our fathers. Okay? Lots of work done on this. How your father acts, treated you, acted, largely, in ways oftentimes you don't even know, influence how you view God. You might even expand that to just your parents in general. And so if your father was overbearing or your father was very kind or your father was this or that or this or that, oftentimes that seeps its way into how you view and relate to God. Okay, if you, if you grew up always afraid that you weren't going to make your father proud, okay, oftentimes that's how you uh, exist in relationship to God. You, you constantly think he maybe wants a little bit more out of you. And you're just working and working and working, trying to make him proud. Oftentimes we draw a picture of God from our parents or from our fathers. Oftentimes, and this is a little more humorous to me, we draw our picture of God from ourselves. And so the quote is, right, God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. Right? We, we painted him in our image as well. It's a real fun exercise to do. I've done it before. Uh, if you have a group of people, to give them a quiz about Jesus, a survey, what they think about Jesus, and then a survey about their personality. And watch the answers line up. Right? Turns out Jesus is a whole lot like me, which is convenient for me. So if I like to be alone, guess who also likes to be alone, just personality-wise? Mr. Jesus. But if I'm real social, like to be in crowds, guess who's also more comfortable in crowds being social? Jesus. I think a lot of times we, what we think about God, often, I mean, he likes what we like, right? He dislikes what we dislike. He's in our political party, right? I mean, he kind of favors our tax bracket, those kind of things. And it's just kind of a natural thing. All right, that's a that's a, 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 a often a common I think place where we draw our image of God. Another one would be, I mean, sometimes it's kind of weird in just my interaction with people, like a Sunday school lesson as a kid, and that one story or that one statement just never got out of that person's heart or their psyche or their mind, uh, or kind of a cultural caricature, right? So this old man in the sky um, who who's just really upset and doesn't want to see anyone have fun, those type of things. And it's again vital that we get the right image of God, that we know who God is. Uh, at his core, we know his nature, his character, and it's real easy to let a wrong image of God become destructive. And if you know me, you know that one of the things that I do and like to do is to analyze religious language. Okay, maybe sometimes too much, but uh, that's just kind of what I like to do. And, and so, if you were have been paying attention, you after the aftermath of the Sandy Hook Elementary shootings, you, you're going to hear a few different things, and, and I'm hearing these things and wondering, okay, what image, what picture does this give God? So one of the things, kind of this little internet meme that went around, was that uh, you have these kids who are shot at the elementary school, and the kind of general sense, I don't know the exact wording, was what do you expect when we kick God out of public schools, right? I mean, what, what else would you expect that in public schools, kids are going to die? And you're going to get shot, right? Um, and, and at a certain level, there's kind of some logic there. And it kind of is, you can easily see how that would gain traction, right? And just share and pass along and those type of things. Um, a student brought that to my attention in class. And uh, I kind of paused. I go, okay, let's think through real carefully, though. What kind of picture does this paint God with? Does this make him out to be like a vindictive child? Who, because he got kicked out of something, because he's not being prayed to anymore? is now going to kill children or allow children to be killed? I mean, is that the kind of God that we, we have and we see in the scriptures, that the lives of children are worth that kind of just vindictive retribution, right? Like, oh, I'll show you, your, your children are dying. And then on top of all that, you have so many assumptions, right? And this is how we use language. There's so many assumptions behind it. And so the first assumption is that we actually kick God out of the public schools. And I would wonder, when was God in the public schools, right? When we pray to the generic God, We've talked about this before at FC Cube, this kind of deist God that all of Americans can agree on, but certainly not the Christian God. I'm not sure we ever prayed to the, the Christian triune God in public schools. I think we prayed to the God that a Muslim could pray to as well and feel like they were praying to their God. 
If a Muslim and a Christian say the word God, they're not talking about the same thing, right? So I'm not sure exactly we kick God. I mean, it's very similar to the idea that we've got to take back our nation for Jesus. And my question has always been, when, I mean, when did we kick God out of our nation? When was the glory days of American, the Christian nation, the city on a hill? Was it when we started our nation with the largest genocide the world's ever seen? Was that? Probably not. Was it when we were complicit in some of the most horrendous evils of slavery the world's ever seen? Probably not our time either. Was it when we built up one of the biggest militaries and started the most wars that the world has ever seen? Right? And I'm not trying to be anti-America, okay? I don't want the FBI to start tapping my phone lines, right? <laughs> I'm just trying to say, I'm not sure we were ever the perfect Christian city on the hill, right? I'm not sure God, you know, got kicked out of something, and now he's upset about it, and now he's punishing us. And I'm not sure it's worth it for the political capital it gives you to paint God in that kind of picture. And I definitely, and we'll see this, don't think that's the kind of God we get in the scriptures. A God who, because of some political action about prayer revolution would say let's shoot some children I think that's a scary game to play it's important I think it will affect eventually how you view God how you pray to him how you worship him how you relate to him a student of mine just got diagnosed with cancer and uh, in just a matter of a few days now he's at MD Anderson doing chemo treatment things of that nature Uh, and, and I know theological circles that would want to give God some kind of direct agency in that cancer. In the sense that God gave him that cancer. God had some kind of active role in giving that cancer. And the logic behind it is that because God kind of controls everything, right? Nothing exists that God didn't want to have happen. So in some sense, God has to have some sort of plan for this cancer. Again, on the surface, maybe logically it kind of works out. I think, though, if you think more carefully and more biblically, does God desire cancer? Does he desire a 14-year-old boy to have cancer? Let's ask the question. Was there cancer when God created the world? Was there sickness and death? Wasn't there. In the end of the story, will there be sickness and will there be cancer? No. There won't be. Seems like you dice it both ways. However it got there, it's not because God put it there. And in fact, he doesn't want it there. He's working to get it out of there. Very different pictures of God. And so while you might paint that picture trying to protect God's sovereignty, it might come at a bigger cost, which is his goodness, which is who he actually is, his character. The more maybe accurate theological way to look at it would be that God is sovereign by right, de jure, but not de facto, not by fact. Why? Because there's this thing called free will. God has created space in the universe for other agents to act. And so there are things in creation like death and sin which God did not put there and which God does not want there. And when we look at the Gospels, we see God getting rid of it. When we look at the church, we see God getting rid of it. You've got to be very, very careful with how you paint God. We're looking at a picture you give him with how you see who he is, his identity, those type of things. And luckily for us, here's the good news. We have the incarnation. And we have, I think, as Irenaeus would say it, the visibility of God. God put on skin for us and he came close to us. As one theologian would say, Herbert McCabe, the life of Jesus is the life of the triune God on display for history. When you see Jesus walk around, you see the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what Christians mean when we say the word God. You see it in history up close, okay? So let's head to the scriptures. John 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Read with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback under a seat around you. I'd love for you to, to join us and, and pick that up and read with us. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word, uppercase W. This is the early Christian title for Jesus, second person of the Trinity. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. That's a good verse there, verse 5. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is not the same John who's writing the gospel. This is John the Baptist. Not a denomination. That's just what he did. He baptized, right? Okay. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, (coughs) nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, here's where we really get into it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's the idea of incarnation, becoming flesh. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, who's existed from all of eternity, became a human being, changed, and now for the all of eternity is now a human being. <coughs> Christians believe Jesus still has his body. He's still a human being. When he leaves the grave, he doesn't leave his body. When he ascends into heaven, his body didn't remain. Jesus right now is still a human being with flesh and blood and a beating heart. Are you starting to see how crazy this is? How kind of radical this is? I mean, we really carry through the logical conclusions. A triune person, right, a member of the, the triune God, becomes a human being, a young Jewish man in Palestine 2,000 years ago. This is kind of, kind of intense stuff, okay? So he, he takes on flesh, he dwells with us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You have a parenthesis here. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have received, all of us, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that. Verse 18. No one's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. What's interesting is if I walk 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds through this text, when we get to verse 18, they remember from the Old Testament, wait a minute, there was this guy named Moses, who John would have been familiar with, who you probably could have said saw God. At least a, a portion of him, a side of him. Maybe a little hyperbolic here of John. And he's trying to get this point across. No one's seen God. We've seen God. When we see Jesus, when we hear Jesus, when we walk with Jesus, when we see Jesus, we are seeing the triune God. We're seeing what Christians describe as God. Here's point number one, okay? Jesus is the definitive revelation of who God is. When you see Jesus, you see God. God is like Jesus. I don't think you and I have this picture of who God is, and then we come to find out Jesus is like that. Like, we kind of know who God is. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. The three big omnis, right? And then, hey, guess what? Jesus has those characteristics. I think instead, we see what Jesus is like, and then the New Testament comes in and says, hey, did you see what he was like? Guess what? You saw the Father. You saw God himself. That's what God is like. Let me give you some more scripture here, okay? Flip over to John chapter 14, so to your right. John chapter 14, we'll pick up in verse 8. Philip says to him, to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Quit all this talking, Jesus, all right, this healing and teaching. Just show us God. We just want to see him. Show us the Father. And Jesus responds like this. Have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? Philip, interesting response. Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. The Father. If you've seen me. Now, again, watch what's happening here. This is a 30-something-year-old Jewish man who says, do you know me? You know God. You know the Father. He's like me. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father? The Father's in me. The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Flip over. Continue to go to our right. Colossians chapter 1. So we'll hit Acts. We'll hit Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Then... Go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. No one else? That's cool. All right. Colossians will uh, be in chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 15, the famous uh, Christ hymn here in Colossians. It says this. He is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the image of the invisible God. Again, just like John, no one's ever seen God. He's invisible. He's spirit. But we've seen his image. We've seen him. And it was Jesus. And if you look in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Was part of the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Jesus? Does there remain any other part of God that wasn't in Jesus? No, it's all there. When you see Jesus, you've seen all of who God is. There's not some remainder that you need to go find and add to the picture. You've seen him. You know what he is like. If you flip one page over to chapter 2, you see a similar statement in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The whole deity dwells in him bodily. This, this man, the incarnation, this kind of radical belief. Now here's the question we ought to ask now. If this is true, and I think it's, it's pretty foundational for the New Testament. If this is true, we start asking questions like this. Based on what we know about Jesus in the Gospels, which we know quite a bit about him. We get four pretty lengthy books about who he is. This is why the Gospels are important, right? I mean, a lot of people have tr- trouble kind of fitting the Gospels into the canon. Why isn't it in the Bible? I mean, really all we need is someone to die for us, right? We don't need to know about his life. We don't know what he did, that kind of stuff. But if, if Jesus is revealing God to us, I want to go read the Gospels. I want to go see who Jesus is, how he acts, how he thinks, what he says about certain things. So we might start asking this question. Is Jesus the kind of person, based on what we know in the Gospels, who if someone did something mean to him, would allow or be some way a part of kids dying? And the answer is pretty clear. And I'm not sure anyone could argue based on anything in the Gospels, right? That Oh yeah, that seems like Jesus. Is Jesus the kind of person who would give a kid a sickness? Or who would want, in some form or fashion, a child to have a sickness? Go back to the Gospels. Watch what happens. When Jesus meets sickness, does Jesus, is he kind of compliant with it? Does he go, well, this is a part of my plan. You might not get it now, but I have some things that I'm doing with this. No, Jesus gets annoyed when he meets sickness. Why? Because it should not be there. He knows it doesn't belong. When Jesus meets sickness, what's he do? He throws it out. He says, this is trash. This is junk. Get it out of my creation. I don't want this here. When his best friend dies, he says, not on my watch. Come up from the grave. I don't want death in my creation. When he says, a little girl die, he says, nope, that's not part of the plan. Come back to life. When he sees people possessed by demons, he says, not how I want it to be. No more. I can't imagine that Jesus would be kind of complicit in some kind of plan to give a child a sickness. I'm going to teach you a word, okay? For our second point. <laughs> and uh, the word is this. Ready? It's cruciform. Say that with me. Cruciform? Cruciform. Cruciform. It's kind of a cool word. All right. Flows pretty nicely. Cruciform. Basic idea is the form of a cross, right? The shape of cross. Cross-shaped. Here's our second point. What Jesus specifically reveals about God is he reveals that God is cruciform. Mm-hmm. Jesus reveals that God is cruciform. Look at the character and nature of Jesus. And you're going to see a shape, a cross shape. What is the cross shape like? The cross is shaped like service and love. It's shaped like a self-sacrificial love. A love that would lay down one's own life for the protection, for the rescue, for the well-being of another. That's who Jesus is. And if Jesus tells us what God's like, that must be what God's like. Now here we start stepping on some toes and some traditional images of God. I think a lot of people don't portray God like that. Jesus is like that, but God's not like that. The Father's not like that. Right? We have this kind of Greek philosophical background for God. He's the other. He's he's never changing. He's not involved in time or history. He doesn't have emotions. He's not bothered by anything. That's not the God you see in Jesus who weeps, who hurts who feels sorrow, and who dies. Perhaps the closest we know about God's response to Sandy Hook would be crying. I think that's a picture you could get from the Gospels. Does God weep to 
see, grieve over the evil in his creation that he does not desire to be there? I think we could give a, a positive answer to that. <clears throat> Go to Philippians chapter 2. Let's see some scripture for this. Philippians chapter 2, you've got a, a hymn here. So another early Christian song, Philippians chapter 2. Real famous piece. I preached on this a while ago. We'll pick it up in verse 5. I told you we'd do it to flipping, alright? There's a few more to go and we'll land. Philippians chapter 2. We're still on this idea that God is cruciform. Jesus reveals who God is. God is cross-shaped. He's self-sacrificial. He's all-loving. Philippians chapter 2. Let's, let's read about Jesus here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's the hymn, verse 6. Who... Though he was in the form of God. Now this start to the poem is real interesting. Most scholars are going to say, though, is not a good translation here. I did a whole sermon on this so we can get more detail if you went back in the records and heard that. Most people are going to say, scratch out though and put because. Both for grammatical and syntactical reasons. The hymn should start, because he was in the form of God. He did these things. Not as if these two things were opposed because this is what God does. Again, he, he's cruciform. So, because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not, did not consider this kind of Greek God status, right, where I can't be touched and I'm powerful and everyone serves me and I just do what I want and, and whatever happens to anybody else, I don't care. Didn't think that was something to, to, to be uh, worthy of him, to be worthy of calling God. But instead... He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, incarnation. So watch the first movement. Jesus is going to go downward here. Okay? First movement from eternal God to a human being. Can we all agree that that's a, that's not an upgrade? Okay? <laughs> You're moving in the wrong direction at that point. He's born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We continue to go downward. Right? From God to man, from man to dead man, crucified. Not a good death. And therefore, God, the Father, has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God and that's what he did? Perhaps it means that's who God is. And perhaps when Jesus is raised and given the title that only belongs to God, it's because he has proven himself to be God. Because he went to the cross, because he gave his life up, he deserves the name that only belongs to God. The sacred name. The name God reveals himself as. Scholar N.T. Wright would say that the, the theological emphasis of this hymn is not simply a new view of Jesus. Look how far he ascended out of his love for us. It's a new understanding of God. That this is what God looked like all along. This is who God is. We'll keep flipping. Um, go to, well, we won't go there for time's sake, but in, in 1 John, John says that God is love. Okay? Interesting statement. Not that God does love, that he does loving things, but he is love. It's intrinsic to his being. And then John says, you don't need to guess at how to define love. It's been defined for us in a very historical event, the cross. We know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. Do God is love, and love is the cross. God is cruciform. At his very nature, God's heart is one of giving himself up for his creation out of wholly devoted love. In fact, if you were actually to go back and do a close reading of the word holiness, that's what you'd find. I think most of us have been brought up with a, a, a shallow view of holiness, one that's been corrected recently by scholars. Holiness is not just majesty, as in I can do whatever I want, so be it. Holiness, scripturally, is majesty in relation, in relationship. It's covenantal commitment. God is holy. Go read every time you see the word holy. Why? Because he's chosen Israel. And he will continue to fulfill the covenant to Israel. He will save his creation. He's committed to his creation out of love, self-sacrificial love. I would dare say this as we, we wrap up this point. Any picture of God that's not cruciform is incorrect. It's wrong. 
It's not a mystery, it's a mistake. It's just wrong. This is not who we as Christians know God to be. Because he's been revealed to us in the life and person of Jesus. So here we go into point number three, okay? This is going to be probably the most controversial point of the morning. I want to push you here. I would say this. Jesus' revelation of God, as Christ's form, trumps all other revelations. Now, if I was being more academically careful, I would probably use language like this. It holds relevatory, relevatory priority. Okay, It gets priority out of all the different revelations you get from God. But it, so, so here's what I mean here. If you have the picture of Jesus and another picture that does not look like Jesus, which one do Christians go with? Jesus. Do we put them together and see what comes out? No. Do we grab six different pictures of God and shake them all together and see the composite sketch? No. We have the picture of who God is. Did all the fullness of deity dwell in Jesus? So do we need to go looking for more? No, we we don't. In fact, go to Hebrews chapter 1. If you'll remember, uh, I preached through the book of Hebrews. (laughs) Years ago, right? Because it took like four years to get through Hebrews. It's taking five years to get through Acts. Back when I was a young guy, we were in Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. All right, this is a brilliant text. And then we're going to flip back to John and, and we'll land there, I think. All right, so this is the last we've got here. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So we've gotten all kinds of different messages about God. You can go read most of them from the prophets. Lots of different messages. But, in contrast, set up over and against those messages, in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint. Was he 99% of the imprint? Was he 50% of the imprint? Was he one out of four puzzle pieces of the imprint? And if we go get the other three and put them all together, guess what? We know who God is. No, the exact imprint. The very character. 100% God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think you see a, a contrast here. Long ago, in many ways, we got the prophets. But it wasn't a full revelation. It was like shadows. It was like sketches. It pointed us to the truth, but it wasn't the whole truth, the perfect truth. But we've seen it. We've heard it. We've gotten the message. We've seen the exact character of God with the life and person of Jesus. Go back to John 1. I promise you we'll land here. John chapter 1. This is very interesting. Look in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. The Torah was given through, through Moses. In fact, there are three divisions of the Old Testament. The Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, which we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, and the Ketuvim, the writings. So we've got two out of the three here mentioning these verses. The Torah was given through Moses. Okay, First five books of the Bible. Sometimes Torah is even used for the whole Old Testament canon. Given through Moses. Grace came through Jesus. So this is a contrast you would have expected, right? We often compare law and grace, right? Law and gospel. Law, it's hard to kind of fulfill, right? We get condemned, we don't meet it. Then grace, we're forgiven, we get mercy. But wait a minute, John threw something else in there that you wouldn't have expected. What's the other word he says came to Jesus? Truth. As if truth did not come through Torah. This is pretty shocking for a Jewish man to say. Again, probably a little hyperbolic. But he wants you to feel this in your bones. What came before is not like what has come now. And what has come now is the perfect picture of who God is. A cruciform God. A God of self-sacrificial love. So what we need to avoid is pictures of God that say, yes, but. We need to get rid of yes, but theologies. So yes, Jesus was like that, but we have this story, or this story, or this picture of God. 
So you have a couple things that really throw people off here when you start pressing this kind of point. The first is the Old Testament. Because you have, without a doubt, portraits of God in the Old Testament that do not look like Jesus. God commands genocide. God kills people himself. And so this is a, a problem. I thought God looked like Jesus. But God looks kind of different over here. If I would imagine this God becoming man, I wouldn't have came up with Jesus. And you often get this Old Testament, New Testament portrayal. Here's what I want to argue. Don't say yes, but. If this is who Jesus is, this is who God is. Will you have some tensions and some problems with maybe Old Testament portrayals of God? Sure, but don't water down Jesus because of that. Don't water down the portrait of God given in Jesus. You've got, I think, New Testament precedents for doing this. John does it. Hebrews chapter 1 does it. Sure, we had stuff in the past. Now we have Jesus, and it's all we need to understand who God is. If God's not cruciform, I say get rid of the picture. Now, learn what was being portrayed. So I believe very, very strongly all scripture is inspired, including the Old Testament. I believe also, though, that the Bible is a narrative, and that history itself is a narrative. It's a story. We're going somewhere with history. The way narratives work is not all the pieces in a narrative hold the same amount of weight. And all of you do this when you read stories. You know this. The opening scene does not mean as much as the closing scene, right? And sometimes in the opening scene, you don't know everything you need to know. Sometimes in the opening scene, you have misunderstandings. Sometimes even on purpose. And so where you might think that the janitor killed the lady... By the time you get to the end of the story and you find out the lady actually killed herself, the janitor was this great guy. When you go back and read that opening scene, do you read it differently? The answer is yes. You read it knowing, oh, that wasn't actually the janitor in the first place. The janitor turned out to be this great guy. You read it with the end in mind, with the telos, with the climax, with the outcome. We get this picture of who God is through Jesus. And that's going to, has to affect how we go back and read the Old Testament. So we have New Testament precedents. I think the New Testament authors do this for us. Torah through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus. No one's seen God, now we've seen God. I think it just works with narrative. I think also Jesus himself does this over and over again. Jesus repudiates the Old Testament on multiple occasions. And it makes us uncomfortable, but he does it. So uh, a command repeated multiple times in the Old Testament, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Part of the central holiness code in the Old Testament Jesus says, you've heard it said, do that. I tell you, that's not the way we're going to do it. Remember the whole loving your enemies thing? Kind of one of Jesus' big points in his life. This is kind of embarrassing for Jesus, though, because who told the Israelites, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? If you read the footnotes, it was God. <laughs> is God allowed to change his mind? Should we say, well, since we have a command in the Old Testament, this is eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, we can't fully go with Jesus' command, this is no longer how it's going to act. It's no longer how it's going to happen. No. We follow Jesus, the full revelation of God. This happens over and over again in the Old Testament. Um, I think he does this for us, right? So in Luke 9, Jesus, after giving his love your enemy command in Luke chapter 6, where if you read carefully, he says, love your enemies because that's who God is. Jesus says it. That's the character of God. Be like your heavenly Father, who shows mercy on his enemies. They go, Jesus and disciples, to a Samaritan village. When they get to the Samaritan village, the Samaritan village rejects them. Jesus' disciples have a great idea, which is to call down fire on the Samaritans. Burn them up, Old Testament style. <laughs> Jesus gets very upset with them. He rebukes them, and in some manuscripts, says, your spirit is not my spirit, when you're thinking these thoughts and wanting these things. Why? Literally, uh, literary, um, in literary time, three chapters ago, I just told you we don't act like that anymore. Right? I mean, how did you forget that quickly? Where do we go from loving your enemies to, if they didn't accept our preaching, we're going to burn them up in this big dramatic fire? That's a big disconnect. Here's where they went to the Old Testament, where a biblical hero in the Old Testament does this multiple times, Elijah. Jesus rebukes them. Here's an interesting question to ask. If Elijah, again, this biblical hero, who's never portrayed in the Old Testament as these things were wrong or bad or God didn't approve of them, if he was in first century Palestine, would Jesus have rebuked him and said, that is incorrect. That's not how we act. 
if you're trying to be like God? I think Luke gives us the answer pretty clearly. Yes, the story has changed. God has been fully revealed to us, and he looks a lot like Jesus. And Jesus serves people. And Jesus has pity for people who are suffering. And Jesus is not scared of sinners or outcasts. And Jesus does have anger. Jesus is very unpredictable. Don't get me wrong here, right? Jesus is not wholly affirming of everything, like some kind of hippie, right? I guess everything's good. No, Jesus got killed. You get killed by offending people very strongly. But Jesus sees creation and rebellion, and he dies. And Jesus says, the heart of God is to let suffering come on me before I inflict it on others. Because I will save, I will redeem, I will rescue. And the, the scriptural story says, if you were to peer into the eyes of Jesus on the cross, you're peering into the heart of God. As this young Jewish man says, I'll die praying for you. They don't know what they did. And that's who God is, according to the scriptures. So we need to avoid these, these yes buts. Is there tension? Yeah. Do you have to deal with these ultimate scriptures? Yes, they're there. They're inspired. The question, though, is, is what are they actually teaching us? What are they actually showing us? We can't water down Jesus to do that. Another thing, real quick here, is so some people do this from the Old Testament. Other people do this yes but, and this always gets me from the book of Revelation. So from Jesus' second coming. We're in Advent. <laughs> Think about Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So some people will do this little number on you. Be careful. Look out for it. Sure, Jesus came the first time. He was really meek, really mild. He was well-behaved. He was a gentleman. When he comes the second time, watch out. He's going to make our nukes look puny. He's coming for blood. And he's not going to stop till he gets all of it. Do not ever let anyone tell you when Jesus comes back, he's different from his first coming. The exact same person. Don't let them separate those out. That's incorrect. In fact, it's a bad reading of the book of Revelation. Go back and read Revelation very closely. Jesus comes back with a sword. But show me where he kills people with a sword. The sword is coming out of his mouth, right? Which I tried once. It's a, it, that's not an efficient way to battle. It doesn't go well. The sword is symbolic of his word. What's the word? It's the gospel. What's the gospel? That Jesus was a nonviolent person who died. Who's Jesus portrayed in Revelation? As a lamb who was killed. Not a very menacing figure. Lambs, don't, I don't know if you know lambs. They don't go around killing a whole lot of things. And then the book of Revelation is this big cosmic battle scene, right? Don't get me wrong. There's people dying in Revelation. You've got to ask, though, who's doing the killing? Because Revelation sets up with this awesome epic story. And you've got, at, at a certain point in the book of Revelation... The lamb that was slain on one side of the world and the dragon who's waging war in creation on the other side of the world. This is Satan. Who's waging war? Who's put the sickness? Who's put all those things in? Not the lamb. It's Satan. And the lamb is battling the dragon, the Satan. And they are doing the stare down for chapters. And it is epic. The whole time you're wondering, what's going to happen when they meet each other? Again, lambs don't fare well in most fights, much less a dragon. But you've got this lamb who sets himself up on Mount Zion. And he looks across creation as war and chaos are breaking out. And you've got a dragon who set himself up on the shore of the sea, a symbol for chaos and evil. And they stare each other down while all hell literally breaks loose on earth. And you're going, this is going to be awesome when they finally take away from their place and meet each other in the middle. They do. And it's the most anticlimactic thing you will ever read in your entire life. I mean, I'm a good American. I'm expecting a 15-chapter Lord of the Rings epic battle scene. You get one verse that assumes the lamb has already beat the dragon. As if there wasn't really even a battle. Like it was one on the cross. Like the cross was more than just this kind of spiritual way to forgive our sins. As if the cross really was God's way of saving creation. It's that the victory's been won. So if Jesus doesn't need to come back and blow people up, and again, read Revelation very carefully. Evil crumbles in on itself in Revelation. 
it gets kind of clunky in the middle chapters. Most people don't read it very carefully. The empire turns on itself and falls to where only the lamb and his people are left standing. The dragon's been captured. Evil has done its worst. And as evil does, turns on itself and is no longer standing. Much like the cross. What does evil do? Well, it centers in on Jesus. Jesus takes what it has and then it's done. And who's left standing? The lamb. Jesus, resurrected. So again, I think the revelation, the picture you get of God in Jesus trumps all the revelations. Don't <coughs> settle for a second-rate picture of God that's not cruciform. I don't think it's biblical. Here's my fourth point, and, and we'll wrap it up here this morning. <coughs> fourth point, I'll uh, be honest with you, it's stolen from an uh, a author that I enjoy. His name's Michael Gorman. He... Uh, he glosses the holiness code. So the basic ethical command in the Bible, Old and New Testament, really, is be holy for I'm holy. And he goes through this, this cruciformity stuff, and he glosses the statement like this, and this would be our fourth point. He says, the holiness code might, after we see Jesus, be this. Be cruciform, for I am cruciform. This is the command of discipleship, right? You are called to go love other people. You're called to go serve other people. You're called to go lay down your life for other people. You're called to give up your rights. You're called to, to lay your life down. Now, this is not a fun call, right? I mean, this is, this is not what we want. We want to attain to the Greek godlike status, right? I want to be powerful. I want to be served. I want to do what I want. Who cares? But that's not the picture of the Bible. Jesus says, pick up your cross. This is how it works. This is who I am. This is who God is. This is who you should be. If you want to be like me, if you want to follow me, this is what your life will look like. If you're not careful, if you let these other pictures of God creep in, guess which God you're going to choose to be like? The God who comes back in Revelation and destroys everybody without suffering or the God who goes to the cross? I'll choose the path to glory, please. Jesus says, pick up your cross, follow after me. Be self-giving. Love others with everything that you have, including your own life. Why? That's who I am. That's who God is. We return to these, these pictures of God, I think, that resonate throughout our culture and resonate throughout our interactions and our experiences, both the Sandy Hook with Cade, with uh, my buddies in the, the hospital right now. And then back to... Pictures of God like our, our father, our parents, a cultural caricature. I mean, dare we believe that in John 8, when you see Jesus meet a woman who deserves death according to Torah, death penalty, prescribed by who? God. And Jesus shows up in John 8 and is gentle towards her in her lowest moment where she deserves death and says, You're forgiven. Go, don't sin. Experience a life of freedom. Dare we believe that's how God reacts to sin? When he sees it in you and I. When you're at your lowest, when you're the dirtiest you've ever been, deserving of the most death and punishment you've ever been deserving of, that the nature of the triune God is one who whispers down, gets in your ear and says, I forgive you. I love you. I'm saving you. I didn't come to inflict harm on you. I came to inflict harm on your enemies, on my enemies, the enemies of creation, what I've created and put into existence. I want your love back. I want you to follow me. I want you to go and sin no more. Dare we believe when we see Jesus hang out with outcasts, with the wicked, with the sinners, that we think that's who God's interested in. That's not the person God's protesting. That's not the person God's yelling at. That's the person God's eating with and praying for and hanging out with. I think most of us, because of our, our messed up images of God, are only one or two steps away in reality from being Westboro Baptist Church. Picketing soldiers. I think more people are closer to that than they realize they just have this cognitive dissonance. 
where they know that's wrong and they don't let their theology lead them to its logical conclusion. I mean, if you really have this picture of God hating such a large portion of the world, you would eventually start to join in on that hate. But that's not the, the picture of God we get in Jesus. It's radical. Is it shocking? Yes. Is it hard to wrap your mind around? Yes. Will it take years for any of us to even really get started on this? Yes. But will I dive into the Gospels and dare say, that's God. That's what he looks like. That's what he talks like. That's what he thinks. Yes. Because I'm a Christian. And Christians, around this time of the year, we celebrate this thing called the Incarnation. Where we believe God revealed himself to us. And we celebrate that. Let's pray together. Father, we we love you. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the uh, revelation that we get uh, through his life and through his his person. We thank you that you've come close to us, that you've drawn near to us. We thank you for the Gospels. I mean, so often in my life I've just neglected the Gospels. So I thank you for the Gospels. I thank you for Jesus' life. I thank you for the men who knew Jesus and walked with him. I thank you for the promise of his second coming. I thank you for the the promise that that one day soon he'll return and be with us and, and complete the work that he started in his first coming. Father, I pray that, that you would continually reshape my image of who you are around your son, around the cross. And that that would stir in me such a strong response to obey you and to worship you and to follow after you with everything that I've got. Father, we love you. I thank you for, for saving us. I thank you for dying for us. I thank you for humbling yourself, becoming a man, going to the cross, Thank you for the life that you've given us, for the spirit that you've bestowed on us. I pray that we would be ever formed in your image, the image of your son. We love you. We thank you for this morning. It's in your son's name that all of God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Amen.